Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Jason Hack, and today we are tackling Minute 43, which begins with Drake stalking toward the med bay and leading the group, and ends with Hicks eyeballing a few facehugger specimens. And we have uh, Paul Francis Sullivan from the Sully Baseball Podcast back with us again today. Thanks for coming back, Sully. Yeah, absolutely. I love looking at sci-fi films with 1986 technology, which is what we are going to see big time here as it looks like they're walking past a bunch of uh, IBM mainframes, it looks like, as they're going through the right. uh, the area here. That's what I said. I said it looked like a big server bay, right? Yeah, yeah like a, a bunch of computers on racks is what it looks like to me. And then uh, Engel uh, said it looked uh, like lockers to him. The other side of it looks like lockers, and it is the med bay. So it, it, it's kind of questionable. Why would they need so many servers in the med bay, but who knows? Who knows what's going on in that 2079 or whatever, 2179 or whatever year it's supposed to, to be. Sol- to Sully's point of 1986 technology, you figure all the medical records were saved on five and a quarter inch disc. Yeah, right. all floppies. So big floppies, big floppies. This was uh, a lot of the design in this film was by Sid Mead. I don't know if he talked at all about Sid Mead uh, in any of the previous minutes, but he did a lot of design work for. Um, Tron and 2010 and a lot of other sci-fi books. I remember when 2010 came out, they had this book of like the uh, the art of 2010, like the interior of all the spaceships that they mm-hmm. designed, the Leonov and the other Russian ships and everything like that. But that's a film I haven't seen in years. And I bet that does not hold up, but I remember liking it a lot when I saw it. But uh, I remember when I rewatched this, well, when I saw this for the first time and then when I rewatched it the other day, you could see a lot of that Sydney design, which was um, as trying to have a certain amount of practicality. It wasn't just space stuff and flashy stuff. It was everything tr- seemed to have a purpose, which is kind of how we have technology that exists. We try not to have little flashy things. We tend things to have have you know to be practical, especially on a, a place like this, which would be a colony. And it has a sense of being in the future, but also a sense of being familiar. Like you see, like the things look like a mainframe. These things look like they're fluorescent lights. So when we go in there, it doesn't. This doesn't feel alien to us. You know, this doesn't feel like a foreign place to us. It's not like, you know, like a, a bunch of technology that is beyond our grasp. All right. And I think what we were saying in the previous minute. I mean, one of the previous minutes when we were going through, we see some of the point of view of the cameras, and the cameras had that similar 1980s camera look to it. I think having that sense of familiarity when you're watching it, adds to the suspense because it's an environment that you understand. And the things that you don't understand are the things like the acid falling through, you know, the, the acid holes and the, and the, the face huggers and not the environment itself. And you know, that's, when, when, oh, sorry, go ahead. Everyone talk at the same time right now. Well, I, I, was, just, <laughs> I was just saying that's, that's he's exactly right. It, I mean, in, in one sense, it keeps your movie cheap, right? You can prowl around in junkyards and salvage yards and you can, and you can reimagine, you know, everyday items with a little bit of, of, you know, accessorizing into more exotic props. But at the same time, you're right. It, it lends a familiarity to it. The Marines for all of their alleged, you know, fancy weapons aren't, aren't too terribly far away from us army soldiers with the exception of, of their, their armor really. And their cameras on the helmet. There isn't anything that that feels too far away. And I would actually say that I think the arrow-breaking sequence with the Alexei Leonov in 2010 is flipping awesome. Okay, you know what? I bet that. You know, I bet it's fine. I bet the biggest the biggest criticism is comparing it to the Kubrick film as opposed to 
just enjoying it as a fine sci-fi film on its own. Or Helen Mirren's Russian accent. Or Dana Elkar's Russian accent. Neither one of those is, is too terribly good, but I think the Leonov is pretty awesome. Yeah, Leonov's a great ship. That's a classic Sid Mead design. So I got it. We we have this amazing shot over Drake's shoulder as we creep in. We've got the uh, the the flashlight visible on his shoulder. I think we probably got the the muzzle of his gigantic smart gun protruding from the from the right side as we move in. John, I believe this shot is a particular favorite of yours. Well, yeah, it's shots like these I'm fascinated by. I always have been. I can remember going all the way back to. Empire Strikes Back, for instance. There's a great moment. I think it's the third moment that Luke and Darth Vader can, can clash in that last lightsaber duel where it, it seems as though Vader's had it. He's done with this, with messing around. And it's conveyed through this great shot over his shoulder as he stalks towards Luke and Luke's in the background holding his lightsaber. And how how just like... How exhilarating it is to actually follow a character. You kind of look over their shoulder, actually be in the scene kind of is what it feels like. And it, that relates to what we were just solely was just talking about with the, you know, the technology that's familiar, it puts you in place. Well, in this case, it's a more visceral kind of thing where you're actually feel like you're moving along with Drake as he's stalking into this room. And it's just, I don't know, it's just so exciting. And I have a hard time articulating that kind of, because it's one of the reasons that my favorite movie ever is Yojimbo. And it opens with that great title sequence where you're just following Toshiro Mifune around with this, like the camera's just on his shoulders and his head and he's center frame in that case. And there's just something about it that makes you feel like you're a part of the movie. I don't know. I could go on and on about it. There's one in Creed as well, more recently where you're following the, the Creed kid into his first fight down the corridors and into the ring. And I don't know. I guess I didn't have as much to say about it as I thought. <laughs> no, that's great. No, it's, 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 you feel like you're part of this and you also see like, you know, that um, Paul Reiser's kind of in the back with his, you know, his, his vest and his checked shirt. Yeah. When you do the cross cut back and you get Drake, you know, as he comes in, we're seeing him from the front. I don't know. It's a little bit nerve wracking when you're walking in there, you're kind of in the shadows with him going into this room and then you cut back and they do that little, just quick little pan over to then you get like, you think for just a second, I got to get the sense like, oh, this is a quick little pan over. There could be something over around this corner, I guess, as Drake is is stalking forward with the gun raised. But instead, you get Gorman and Burke come out of the other side and sort of benignly Burke directs Gorman some direction. I guess Burke must have some understanding of the layout of the facility here, why he's giving Gorman directions. I don't know. Yeah, that that also, once again, lends itself to the notion that, that Burke is manipulating Gorman. Burke is Burke chose a weakling. Burke pulled some strings to get a, a, a weak-willed rookie put in charge of this mission and then went along himself. He's got a guy he can mold, that he can influence, and you kind of get that vibe here where he's right there behind him and, hey, actually, it's this way. Yeah, yeah and I just think that there's also, there's a great moment as we're going through each thing here. There's a great you know, when they're they're peeking through and peeking through and right around second thirty four, Sigourney gives a great Dana Barrett and Ghostbusters look when she looks around, her eyes open and she sees something. It reminds me of the scene when she's sitting on the chair in Ghostbusters and she sees the hand the the the, the, the terror dog image kind of poking through the door and the stuff jumps out from the chair that she's sitting on. But she's she has a great I mean, obviously Sigourney is a great actress and has got a strikingly beautiful face, but she's a great expression that she had in both that film and this film of, oh, I see it now. 
Mm-hmm. I see it. And that moment where she's like, she's there, she sees it, she has the expression. It's not over the top, but it's very powerful. And then Hicks is right over her shoulder, and Hicks sees it too. And that's when we go, that's the thing that stands out as the the face huggers in the in the little tanks. And and this is our first understanding uh of the fact that it is the aliens. They are they are exactly what 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 we thought they are. They are clearly involved in the colony somehow. And once again, Hicks is right there with her and he's the guy who kind of sees these things for the first time and begins ascribing more and more weight to them um and and more and more credence to Ripley's story. You know, he's he's suddenly with her a little bit more. He's he's next to her. He's gently touching her arm to move her aside. And of course, she flinches because which is a good way to convey that she is in mortal terror right now. She has seen these things and is flashing back to what was 57 years ago, but not that long ago to her. And her it's Um, only a week and a half or something. (laughs) Right. Who who knows what what, what the time's like. But yeah, it's certainly I, I agree that it's certainly far less than 57 years. And we also get this nice little music cue that starts up um that that is horner at his sort of sinister eerie best uh that's I th- sort of a sort of a, a high soft horn i think but it's really creepy and it 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 amps up the fact that we're seeing something that is sinister that is alien at its most true definition of the word alien these horrifying things and the canisters they're naked for everybody to look at yeah. By the way, I don't. I I didn't catch this in the earlier minute, so forgive me if, if I'm uh, um, traipsing over something you've already talked about. But in regards to James Horner, the late great James Horner, who I know some people have criticized him for reusing certain cues in certain movies, like Battle Beyond the Stars is basically the soundtrack to Wrath of Khan, and lots of Willow shows up in Cocoon, etc. But I always think of it that you know. James Horner was like the Ramones. You know, he does what he does well. If he repeats a few chords, that's just <laughs> fine. That's pretty um, happy, yeah. But uh, in the opening of, of this, when you see the, the ship floating at the beginning before the salvage crew finds Ripley, did you talk about the music cue that was used there or no? Uh, John, that we, we talked about that, but I don't know that we hit, we did that that episode but i don't know that we touched on the music the music the music is almost note for note the music in 2001 a space odyssey when you see the the discovery going deep into jupiter and all the people are in hibernation except for uh bowman and pool and hal and um it's da na 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 Dun, 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 dun. Which is a, I, which is, I believe, is a classical piece of music because Kubrick didn't use any original score for that film, and he sampled Horner sampled that as a as a cue when she's floating in space asleep, like the characters were in two thousand one, and that's also what they play. Spoiler alert: at the very end of the film, when the credits start to roll over the image of her back to their back asleep again. And uh, and I I read that Horner had like only like eight weeks to or something insane you know something unreasonable to come in and do a score for this film 
And um, and so he was probably like, okay, he probably took a little dash of Wrath of Khan, a little twist of Cocoon, and uh, said, oh, that cue from 2001, I bet that was in the temp track. I said, screw it, sounds great, let's go, let's go, let's roll, let's roll. Mm. And um, But it is incredibly effective, you know, it, and, and, and it, it certainly works in this film. And I don't mind a little sampling at the beginning. Hell, it's, so it's almost gives a Tarantino quality if we're going to lift a piece of music from another movie. But uh, yeah, the music in this scene works really, really well just to sort of build it up great. And and I'm I'm a big James Horner fan, I, especially for the the Star Trek uh, movies he did and the score for Willow, which is a great score. Whether whether what, what you think of the movie or not, it's a great score he did for that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this just works like gangbusters in this scene. I don't, I don't mind if you self, if you rip yourself off, if what you're doing in the first place is pretty good. You yeah. know, reusing something great doesn't bother me much. Yeah, well, that's why I made the Ramones reference. You know, they played right. the same chords over. And over. No one seemed to mind about that. So, yeah, that's a good way to put it because we did talk about that fairly extensively, and we were pretty negative. I guess. I mean, we both liked Mitch and I were the ones that were talking about the particular episode, and and we both liked, we both like Horner. But we did talk a little bit more negatively about him. Maybe, maybe called him a ripoff artist, uh, ripping himself off. Uh, but you know, I'm glad, Sully, that you were able to bring the positive spin because that's a really good analogy. I think the Ramones thing really works, and I do agree. He had a horrible uh, the schedule that he was given to make this movie, uh, to score for this movie, was un- pretty much unreasonable. There was a lot of unreasonable scheduling on this movie, which I think kind of pushed it to be better than it might have been, even. But yeah. I think the score for this movie works perfectly. And I don't have a problem with that cue at the beginning either. I think it's a nice, it's just a quote, you know, you're just quoting a a very recognizable, iconic piece of music from a very iconic movie. I don't see any problem with that at all. Also, um, the, uh, he, he also did the music for both glory and for field of dreams, which are great music scores for, for films and, and, and which don't reuse, uh, Wrath of Khan. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, Gloria in particular, you're not going to have a lot of Harlem Boys Choir in the Wrath of Khan. That's for sure. No, I, 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 he tried. He tried, <laughs> but they, they cut it out last minute. <laughs> That's right. It was so, supposed to be Lieutenant Savick's theme, and yeah. they just decided it just didn't work. That's what Nicholas Meyer said. So, yeah. what can you do? Okay. That's all I have for this awesome minute. Yeah, I, I don't have anything else either. Sully, you got anything? I was just known. This is this was great stuff, and 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 anytime we can pay tribute to the late great James Horner, um, you know, so he's not John Williams. He doesn't write a new theme for everything. Time, um, hell, it works. You know? Yeah, it yeah. Works. I mean, his his stuff is is the stuff that's iconic is extremely iconic. It's yeah. it's unmistakable in that sense. He's a little bit like John Barry. John Barry scores tend to sound like other John Barry scores. Yeah, that doesn't mean they're not always terrific. Yeah, if I play. Boy, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go deep dive nerd soundtrack stuff here. But if I play the theme for the '76 King Kong, the theme of Out of Africa, and the theme from the Black Hole, and intercut them, I yeah, you may wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Was this Meryl Streep flying over gazelles, or was this Anthony Perkins being killed by Maximilian? Which one am I listening to? Right, now? <laughs> right holding up the notebook in a futile defense. Right, yeah. all the all the. All of all the Dr. Reinhardt theorems, just no defense against Maximilian's whirling blades. And why would you put those things on a robot, for God's sake? What possible use could those things have? That man-man's going right into the black hole. <laughs> yes, he is, says. And only Ernest Borgnine can get the ship out of, out of danger in time. And, and Ernest Borgnine has Harry Booth. 
Uh, and well, let's for all of you who haven't seen the black hole, let's hope that they all make it out in one piece. I think they do. I think they do. <laughs> they went through. They went through heaven and hell to get through that black hole. Oh, uh, God, 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 <laughs> Robert. Only Robert Forster can get us through. Yep, he was for the Chicago part of deep space. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to the black hole. You hear? <laughs> He's exactly right. It's a deep dish hole. It's, uh, it's We actually sent Vincent along to try and provide some culture on the yeah. ship. He's he, not just comic relief. Yes. God bless him. All well, right. I, that, that's all I got. That's, that's it, man. Then, uh, to quote Vincent, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. Good God. Well, we got old, bold John Engel, at least. All right. Well, Sully, you want to remind everybody where they can find you online? Well, you can go just to the easiest thing is just go to Twitter, go to Sully Baseball on Twitter, and you can find all my wonderful stuff, whether it's the podcast. Yeah, I just called my own stuff wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I'm a raving egotist. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, my video work, my podcast works, so my writing, and some of my TV appearances, too. So, you know, some of the stuff I did for HBO Sports and everything. So, you know, come aboard, jump, jump aboard and dive into the River Sully and float on down and everything will be okay. On Tides of Sully. Yeah. All right. And you can find us at alienminute.com on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcasts and on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for Minute 43. We'll see you tomorrow for 44. Are we recording this? Oh, oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right. All right. Are you guys ready to do that again? Yeah. That's a good, rehearsal. Rehearsal. good rehearsal. Here, I'm going to hit record right now.